Tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney in Australia at 131 York Street. This Aladdin's Cave for Readers is full of jewels and has been family run since 1968. Listeners to the Literary Salon can go to abbeys.com.au and get a 10% discount on all fiction ooh, ooh, by entering Salon in caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbeys. So to tonight, to our first guest of three. Um, I read this book um, on the plane on the way over here. It's a book called Station Eleven, and it's by Emily St. John Mandel. Now, this is a book which concerns uh, a virus, the Georgian flu, a global pandemic, which starts off when people get off a plane. And it was so reassuring to read it on the plane as the woman next to me sat there hacking and coughing. And I just got more and more suspicious of her and started staring at her and hating her so much and being convinced that she was going to give me the Georgian flu. And also, I love the, the, the choice, Georgian flu. It makes it sound so lovely. Um, everybody wants, in England wants to live in a Georgian house, you know, and it's the idea that it's sort of symmetrical and charming with high ceilings um, is very nice. But um, anyway, it's... Um, it's a scary book, it's a dystopian novel, but it actually is in also incredibly literary, and those two things don't often go together. It's an enormously well-written book driven by characters um, who have banded together to keep Shakespeare alive in the world after everything else has ended. And they say survival is not enough. Anyway, she's here tonight to tell us about it. Please welcome Emily St. John Mandel. Now, poor Emily, has, she herself got off a plane just an hour or two ago. She hasn't had long enough to be jet-lagged. Emily, do you know where you are? Australia. Australia. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I traveled for 33 hours um, and landed three hours ago. So if I seem a little bit delirious, it's not, in fact, your imagination. I probably, I probably am. I, I feel like my book should maybe have a warning sticker of some kind. I do not read on airplanes. Yes, it really should have. <laughs> you're like the 30th person I've heard that from. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Station Eleven, it's about a traveling Shakespearean theater company in a post-apocalyptic North America. Um, now, can I, I just say that's a sentence you don't hear very often? It's true, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it is, but it is. Yeah, it it, it is. is. That's my elevator pitch, by the yeah, way. So, it yeah, works. I've been refining it over 57 events. <laughs> uh, shall I go into Please a Please have a wee sure. reading. That would be great. Thank okay. you. Okay. I'm going to read three very brief sections, which I believe total about eight minutes. And I think all you need to know going in is that in two of these sections, they are rehearsing or performing a play. So you'll hear a little bit of the Shakespearean dialogue. 20 years after the end of air travel, the caravans of the traveling symphony moved slowly under a white-hot sky. It was the end of July, and the 25-year-old thermometer affixed to the back of the lead caravan read 106 Fahrenheit, 41 Celsius. They were near Lake Michigan, but they couldn't see it from here. Trees pressed in close to the sides of the road and erupted through cracks in the pavement saplings bending under the caravans and soft leaves brushing the legs of horses and symphony alike. The heat wave had persisted for a relentless week. Most of them were on foot to reduce the load on the horses, who had to be rested in the shade more frequently than anyone would have liked. The symphony didn't know this territory well and wanted to be done with it, but speed wasn't possible in this heat. They walked slowly with weapons in hand, the actors running their lines and the musicians trying to ignore the actors. 
scouts watching for danger ahead and behind on the road. It's not a bad test, the director had said earlier in the day. Gil was 72 years old, riding in the back of the second caravan now, his legs not quite what they used to be. If you can remember your lines in questionable territory, he said, you'll be fine on stage. Enter Lear, Kirsten said. 20 years earlier, in a life she mostly couldn't remember, she had had a small, non-speaking role in a short-lived Toronto production of King Lear. Now she walked in sandals whose soles had been cut from an automobile tire, three knives in her belt. She was carrying a paperback version of the play, the stage directions highlighted in yellow. Mad, she said, continuing, fantastically dressed with wildflowers. But who comes here? The man learning the part of Edgar said. His name was August, and he had only recently taken to acting. He was the second violin and a secret poet, which is to say that no one in the symphony knew he wrote poetry, except Kirsten and the seventh guitar. No, they cannot touch me for coining, Dieter said over his shoulder. He was learning the part of Lear, although he wasn't really old enough. Dieter walked a little ahead of the other actors, murmuring to his favorite horse. The horse, Bernstein, was missing half his tail because the first cello had just restrung his bow last week. Oh, August said, thou side-piercing sight. You know what side-piercing? The third trumpet muttered, listening to King Lear three times in a row in a heat wave. <laughs> you know what's even more side-piercing? Alexandra was 15, the symphony's youngest actor. They'd found her on the road as a baby, traveling for four days between towns at the far edge of the territory. An incomplete list. No more diving into pools of chlorinated water lit green from below. No more ball games played out under floodlights. No more porch lights with moths fluttering on summer nights. No more trains running under the surface of cities on the dazzling power of the electric third rail. No more cities. No more films, except rarely, except with a generator drowning out half the dialogue. And only then for the first little while until the fuel for the generators ran out because automobile gas goes stale after two or three years. No more screens shining in the half light as people raise their phones above the crowd to take photographs of concert stages. No more concert stages lit by candy colored halogens. No more electronica, punk, electric guitars. No more pharmaceuticals. No more certainty of surviving a scratch on one's hand, a cut on a finger while chopping vegetables for dinner, a dog bite. No more flight. No more towns glimpsed from the sky through airplane windows, points of glimmering light. No more looking down from 30,000 feet and imagining the lives lit up by those lights at that moment. No more airplanes. No more requests to put your tray table in its upright and locked position. But no, this wasn't true. There were still airplanes here and there. They stood dormant on runways. They collected snow on their wings. In the cold months, they were ideal for food storage. In summer, the ones near orchards were filled with trays of fruit that dehydrated in the heat. 
Teenagers snuck into them to have sex. Rust blossomed and streaked. No more countries, all borders unmanned. No more fire departments, no more police. No more road maintenance or garbage pickup. No more spacecraft rising up from Cape Canaveral, from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, from Vandenberg, Tanegashima, burning paths through the atmosphere into space. No more internet. No more social media. No more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches. Cries for help and expressions of contentment and relationship status updates with hard icons whole or broken. Plans to meet up later. Pleas, complaints, desires. Pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween. No more reading and commenting on the lives of others and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room. No more avatars. What was lost in the collapse? Almost everything, almost everyone, but there is still such beauty. Twilight in the altered world, a performance in a midsummer night's dream in a parking lot in the mysteriously named town of St. Deborah by the water. Lake Michigan shining a half mile away. Kirsten as Titania, a crown of flowers on her close-cropped hair, the jagged scar on her cheekbone, half erased by candlelight. The audience is silent. Saeed, circling her in a tuxedo that Kirsten found in a dead man's closet near the town of East Jordan. Terry, rash wanton, am I not thy lord? Then I must be thy lady. Lines of a play written in 1594 the year London's theatres reopened after two seasons of plague. Or written possibly a year later, in 1595, a year before the death of Shakespeare's only son. Some centuries later on a distant continent, Kirsten moves across the stage in a cloud of painted fabric, half in rage, half in love. She wears a wedding dress that she scavenged from a house near Petoskey the chiffon and silk streaked with shades of blue from a child's watercolor kit. But with thy brawls, she continues, thou hast disturbed our sport. She never feels more alive than at these moments. When on stage, she fears nothing. Therefore the, therefore the winds, piping to us in vain as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs. Pestilential, a note in the text explains, next to the word contagious, in Kirsten's favorite of the three versions of the text that the symphony carries. Shakespeare was the third born to his parents, but the first to survive infancy. Three of his siblings died young. His son, Hamnet, died at 11 and left behind a twin. Plague closed the theaters again and again, death flickering over the landscape. And now in a twilight once more lit by candles, the age of electricity having come and gone, Titania turns to face her fairy king. Therefore the moon, the governess of floods, pale in her anger, washes all the air, that rheumatic diseases do abound. Oberon watches her with his entourage of fairies. Titania speaks as if to herself now, Oberon forgotten. Her voice carries high and clear over the silent audience, over the string section waiting for their cue on stage left. And through this distemperature, 
we see the seasons alter. All three caravans of the Traveling Symphony are labeled as such. The Traveling Symphony, lettered in white on both sides. But the lead caravan carries an additional line of text. Because survival is insufficient. Thank you. Um, thanks, that was a fantastic, fantastic reading. I wish you'd been there to Thank hold you. my hand on the plane. Um, <laughs> and when you, when you were reading the, the, the middle bit about, you know, the litany of no more, no more, no more, it made me think about the election that had happened in the UK while we were away. It just felt, that's what right. we're going back to, Natalie. Unless they keep us, that's what we're going back to. Which was no itself dystopian, was it not? Exactly, right. exactly. The dystopia has descended. Um, right. But anyway, um, thank you very much for that wonderful reading. Now, the line that you mentioned at the end... Mm -hmm. um, comes not from Shakespeare, but from... From Star Trek Voyager. One That's where I got that room. line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I heard that in an episode when I was 19 or 20. Survival is insufficient. And I would have stolen that line from anywhere. It just, yeah. um, it seemed to me to be such a concise and elegant expression of something that I believe to be true, which is that survival really isn't ever sufficient for us. You know, we're always looking for something else between the basics of food, water, and shelter. And... Mm. That does seem to be something that we long for as a species. And I think it's what stops this novel from being another one of those books of, you know, people hacking themselves up by the roadside mm -hmm. and, you know, eating right. their children. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not the road and it's not a horror. And, a right. and it's a dystopia which, in which we play out our need to find a higher self. Right. And I do very much enjoy a lot of those books. Yeah, I no, loved, I do too. I loved yeah. The Road. I just felt like it had been done. You know, yeah. I... Um, I had to, yeah. I mean, it, it's a great it, book. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it seemed to me that just about all of the dystopian fiction I'd read and about all of the dystopian films I'd seen focused on that immediate aftermath mm -hmm. of mayhem and chaos and horror immediately following a societal collapse. And to my mind, it's not that I don't think that wouldn't happen. I think it would. But it's just not plausible to me that that would last forever, everywhere on Earth. You know, it seems to me that mayhem's not the most sustainable way of life over decades <laughs> and generations. And that, you know, eventually we might be interested in doing things aside from killing, our, killing each other and, you know, eating babies like they do yeah. the road. Um, you, you talk about Shakespeare um, and the, the world that he lived in, which was, which was a world of, of plagues. Uh, you know, and the and the world that we live in, we feel very secure in, and we feel very safe in. And yet, it's also could very easily be a world of plagues. You talk about SARS in the book, right? Right. It's an interesting trade-off, isn't it? I mean, yeah. On the one hand, we know vastly more than we ever have before about the mechanisms of disease, the way mass contagions happen, um, the way bacteria and viruses work, and we do have an incredible arsenal of tools at our disposal that. Of course, in Shakespeare's time, they couldn't have dreamt of. Mm. But our interconnectedness makes us so vulnerable. You know, so I, the very thing which exactly, makes us powerful exactly. makes yeah, us vulnerable. Yeah, I mean, I did just spend 33 hours getting here from New York. You know, that's a lot of airports and ground and connections with people who are coming from other places. And mm. Yeah, it's, uh, I guess that's the basis of all of the disaster movies about plagues, you know, contagion, and all the rest of it. But, when yeah. did your fascination begin? Um, that's a good question. I guess... During a what particularly came, bad flu. Right, a particularly bad flu. Yeah, I had a cold one day and I decided to write a book. <laughs> <laughs> now, what it really was is I wanted to write something very different from my previous three novels, mm. which I was happy with the way they turned out, but they were generally categorized as literary noir. 
And I realized that if I kept going in that vein indefinitely, I would eventually be pigeonholed as a crime writer. Mm-hmm. And I do very much enjoy crime fiction and have huge respect for what crime writers can do, but the thought of being pigeonholed as anything is just so profoundly unappealing to me. Did you feel you were a crime writer? Because I mean, that's how people often refer no, to you as no, crime writer turned something yeah, else um, writer. And <laughs> did you ever think you were sitting down to write crime no, novels? No, I always just set out to write literary fiction, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that is, mm-hmm. um, but with the strongest possible narrative drive. Mm-hmm. I've never wanted to choose between beautiful language and a plot. I've mm-hmm. always at least aspired to have both in everything I've written. It turns out that if you write a literary novel with a crime in it, you've written a crime novel. Um, <laughs> I was surprised. I don't know. So, yes, yeah, so I, was, I was sort of becoming a crime writer. Um, I am marketed as a thriller writer in France, but I don't really see myself that way. So for the fourth book, I thought I'll do something completely different. I'll write about the life of an actor because I'm interested in film and theater. But and I, you trained as a performer. I trained as a dancer, yeah. yeah. But I wanted to write about the modern world, you know, the cell phones and airplanes and the rest of it. And it occurred to me that an interesting way to do that would be to write about its absence. So mm. I thought, I'll make this a post-apocalyptic setting. And you have to end the world somehow. So I went with a, um, I went with wh- a flu. What's scary about the way your world ends, our world ends, is that it's so convincing. It's very easy to imagine these things right. happen. Um, and there's another novel which just came out um, recently uh, by, by Louise Welsh. She's written a trilogy called the, the, the Plague Times Trilogy, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and the first book is A, a Happy Way to Burn. Um, and she talks about London um, in the grip of a disease called mm-hmm. the sweats. And I remember reading, reading that and thinking, oh my God, you know, this yeah, is, it's, yeah. it's also just within our, you know, just, just ready to happen almost. Absolutely. It's, uh, it's so unnerving to us because what these books really are are exaggerations of, non, of a non-fictional premise that, of course, this has happened mm-hmm. on a somewhat smaller scale than what we see in these books, but over and over and over again, you know, um, smallpox in North America and in Europe before that, uh, the plague in Europe. It is just something that seems to happen. You know, but it seems to me that part of, part of being human is dealing with these things. And the history of humanity is in many ways a history of pandemics. So it's something with which we're intimately familiar as a species. I think that's why it scares us so much. I just, I love a plague novel. I mm-hmm. really do. I mean, I've, since, since I read Camus at school, I've just, right. you know, right. whenever there's something that, I mean, I will read quite bad fiction mm-hmm. um, just because there's a plague in it. Because it's, so, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the equivalent of man walks into a room with a gun, but right. on the biggest scale imaginable. It's and true, all, all the rules go out the window and all kinds of things can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking at, when I got to the end of your book, and I, w- I, w- I won't give away the end for those who haven't read it yet, but, um, you know, do we find out more about what happens next to these people who we become so invested in and their, their stories? I mean, are you satisfied with, with, with where you've left it? Do you know more about them um, than we do, Tell Tell? I am satisfied, but I probably don't know more about it than you do. Okay, so you haven't got more that you're keeping I don't from ha- us? No, there's no okay. station 12. Shit. I know. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, so, so you wouldn't be tempted at all to con- having, you know, because you've gone to all the trouble of creating that. I'm just, I really I do know, want a sequel. But, yeah, but I mean, as, as a writer, like, how much time do you really want to spend at the end of the world? No, is really, sure, yeah, sure. I feel like I've said everything I wanted to say about okay. the complete collapse of humanity. Um, <laughs> yeah, not that I didn't enjoy spending time there, but... Yeah, I, I don't think I would do a sequel to this. Did it change how you felt about those things? I mean, as a person, did it sort of make you think, I'm going to have a, an emergency pack and, and a plan right. and things like that? Well, I sort of already do because it's part of being a New Yorker. Like sure, you have your water course. supply and your, you know, your vague, half-baked ideas of how to get out of town. Um, 
You, were you there for 9-11 or were you there no, for Sandy? No, I came there six months after 9-11. I was there for Sandy, but I mm. live on high ground, and that was okay. the most undemocratic hurricane. It, yeah, it, was, uh, it decimated the low-line neighborhoods. In the neighborhoods on higher ground, we woke up and thought, oh, I guess there wasn't a storm after all. And then we looked at the news, and it was horrible. Um, a tale of two set years. Yeah, exactly, always. Um, in answer to your question, it did make me think about the incredible fragility of all of this in mm. a way that I hadn't before. And I did find that profoundly unnerving. That of course you do know intellectually that everything that surrounds us is quite fragile and could probably come apart fairly easily. But then when you start really thinking through, well, what does it actually mean to have mm. no electricity? What is it like when the lights blink out? Which I actually did see in the aftermath of Sandy. Um, what it looks like to be in the streets with no electricity. It's terrifying. Um, yeah, so the things like that. I found myself thinking about more as I wrote the book. Mm. I was just thinking as you were talking that, of course, here in New Zealand, where they're so utterly isolated, um, that um, <laughs> you are. We can't help but um, notice. <laughs> it took us a really fucking long time to get here. It um, really yeah. Like, so anything else would take a long time to get mm -hmm. here. I mean, they'd become aware of it before, at the same time as other people, but you know, you would be fine. Don't well, until the next flight arrived. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Or they, they might have a layover, as I did in Singapore. Right. Um, right. They'll, they'll have time to the do it. The plague might stop at the Sydney airport and then yeah, go no further. Exactly. Um, now, I know it's been optioned to be a film. How involved are you in, in, in that process? So, you know, I'm really... It's such a strange, mysterious process. I have no idea how it works. Um, I did meet with a screenwriter who mm. had really nice ideas for it, and... I appreciated him taking the time to meet with me. You know, it sort of implied that he wasn't going to, I don't know, throw in a mud wrestling scene or just yes. you know, go crazy with the material. Um, change the name. It changed yeah. the name, yeah. 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 Um, I'm not sure how involved I'll be if the film gets made. I mean, usually mm. they get optioned but not made, or optioned, yeah. then they come out 15 years later. But yeah, so yeah. it feels a little bit abstract and unreal, to be honest. It's quite exciting, though. It is. It I'm happy is. about it. Yes, you should yeah. be. Um, we'll take a couple of questions, if anybody has them. People are looking slightly afraid. That man there has a question. Hi. Who's your favorite crime novelist, was that? Speaking as a non-crime novelist, uh -huh. who is your favorite crime novelist? <laughs> we should take a moment to note the passing of Ruth Rendell. Which I know, is very it's sad. sad. It it's is very, very sad. sad. She's an awesome woman. Yeah. Sorry, you didn't know. She didn't know. She's dead. <laughs> Natural causes, yeah, though, I think really we don't sad. have to work out who did it. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, There's such tasteless jokes in there, but I'm not going to take any further. But <laughs> no, but do you, do you, do you have favorite crime writers? Um, my favorite at the moment is a man named Fraser Nixon. He's a, young, he's a young Canadian writer whose publisher went out of business like, the month after his book came out. Oh, um, poor thing. Yeah, his book's called The Man Who Killed. And it's a phenomenal noir novel set in Canada during Prohibition in North America. Um, yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, good. You'll be checking that out. Any other questions? Any other questions? No, I have one more, which is, sure. what are you going to be writing next? Because after the huge success of, right. of, of this book, you're not just sort of sitting down. I mean, you have, you know, you have awards and you know, shortlists and you have huge sales and the prospect of a film. Right. How, how easy is it for you to separate yourself from that, to sit down and think, what do I as a writer want to spend the next you know, year to three years working on? Um, 
how easy it is. Virtually impossible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Station Eleven's taken over my life, which is actually a really wonderful problem to have. I mean, of course it is. Uh, but yeah, I mean, but this was my 58th event for Station Eleven in four countries, I think. Right. Yeah, so it has been somewhat life-consuming in a way that has to, that has to some extent precluded working on the next novel of in course. a very focused way. Um, but there is a next novel. There is a next novel. I'm starting to work on it, but it'll be a while. And is it very different from this, or is it...? I'm not sure yet. I don't know how it ends when I start writing a novel. Um, I think it is quite different. I don't think it's going to be speculative in any way. It might go more in a noir direction, but I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, this was your 58th event. It was lovely 58th. for us. Thank you very much for being here. Emily St. John Mandel! Thank you so much. Thank you. Tonight's podcast is produced in partnership with the lovely literary people at Abbey's Bookshop in Sydney in Australia. This Aladdin's cave for readers is full of jewels and has been family run since 1968. Listeners to the Literary Salon can go to abbeys.com.au and get a 10% discount on all fiction by entering SALON in caps at the checkout. Thank you, Abbey's.